Hello and welcome to season two of the Indiana Lawyer Podcast. That's right, we've been hosting this podcast for a full year now, which means it's time to start a new season. I'm Jordan Morey, Indiana Lawyer Managing Editor and your host for the past 12 months. Thanks for sticking with us. Last episode, we gave you a preview of what to expect on Election Day. So this week, we're bringing you a post-election analysis. Stick around after our headlines to hear that conversation. Let's get to those headlines first. Today is Wednesday, November 16th, 2022, and these are your headlines. Let's start off with some highlights from the November 8th election before we dive into the details during our extended interview. Here's Indiana Lawyer Editor Olivia Covington with the big results you should know. There were several big races that received press coverage on November 8th. Indiana Secretary of State, the U.S. Senate race in Indiana, and nationwide, the question of whether Democrats would keep control of Congress or whether Republicans would sweep them away with the so-called red wave. The dust is still settling on some national issues, but we do know the results of the big races in Indiana, including judicial races. First, U.S. Senator Todd Young easily won re-election against Democratic challenger Tom McDermott, the mayor of the northern Indiana city of Hammond. And in a closely watched matchup between Republican Diego Morales and Democrat Destiny Wells, Morales came out on top in the race for Indiana Secretary of State. Democrats had been eyeing the Secretary of State race as an opportunity to put a member of their own party in a statewide office for the first time in years. But ultimately, the Indiana GOP will keep its hold on statewide offices and on the General Assembly, where it will maintain a supermajority. Another closely watched race was a local one. The contest between incumbent Ryan Mears, a Democrat, and GOP challenger Cindy Carrasco for Marion County Prosecutor. Mears ultimately prevailed over Carrasco, who had based her campaign on the message that Mears is too soft on crime, leading to an increase in violence across the Circle City. But Mears came out on top with about 60% of the vote to Carrasco's 40%. In the courts, appellate judges Paul Mathias, Nancy Vadick, and Leanna Weissman all sailed to retention, keeping their seats on the Court of Appeals of Indiana for the next 10 years. The November 8th election marked the third retention vote for Mathias and Vadick and the first for Weissman. No Supreme Court justices were up for retention this year. Several other contested races for county prosecutor and circuit or superior court judge brought in tens of thousands of dollars in campaign donations. While Republican candidates largely prevailed in those races, too, the Democratic Party did pick up a few key victories. You can check out our full election coverage, including an in-depth look at judicial candidates' campaign finance reports, on our website. Back to you, Jordan. Thanks, Olivia. Now let's shift gears and look at some court news, starting at the top, the U.S. Supreme Court. On November 8th, while Americans across the country were voting, the nation's justices were hearing arguments in a case out of Indiana. That case, Health and Hospital Corporation of Marion County versus Talavesky, began with a Talavesky family suing a Valparaiso nursing home after their elderly family member was chemically restrained and eventually transferred to another care facility involuntarily. But the case has expanded into a bigger issue that the nation's justices have agreed to answer. Can private citizens sue under a federal civil rights statute to enforce spending clause statutes? Those statutes underpin public benefits like Medicaid, Medicare, and food stamps, and advocacy groups have raised concerns that a ruling for HHC would negatively impact citizens who receive those benefits. The justices are also considering a second question more specific to the Talavesky family's case, whether certain rights under the Federal Nursing Home Reform Act are enforceable under the federal civil rights statute. Indiana lawyer senior reporter Marilyn Odendahl was in the courtroom in Washington, D.C. when the case was argued. 
She described how Justice Clarence Thomas, known for staying silent during arguments, uncharacteristically leaned forward in his chair to ask a question when a lawyer for the Telvesky family made a comment he didn't like. She also described how the court's newest justice, Katanji Brown Jackson, appeared frustrated when she was not able to ask questions due to seniority rules. Overall, Marilyn says the justices seemed skeptical of HHC's argument. If that's true, that would be a win for the advocacy groups that had urged HHC to withdraw its case before it went before the court. A decision in the Telvesky case is expected before the end of the court's term next summer. We'll keep an eye out for that decision. Moving to Indiana's highest court, Indiana lawyer reporter Katie Stancombe has an inside look at the work the Indiana Supreme Court has been doing over the last year via the court's annual report. Katie, what can you tell us? Indiana Chief Justice Loretta Rush detailed the health and the status of the state's highest court during a review of its annual report, calling fiscal year 2021-2022 a bounce-back year. The courts have been busy, the Chief Justice says. Things are picking up steam again following delays and setbacks posed by the coronavirus pandemic. The 65-page annual report, released November 4th, highlights the data, milestones, and important projects of the High Court for the fiscal year ending June 30th, 2022. Among the highlights are the retirement of longtime Justice Stephen David and the ascension of his successor, Justice Derek Moulter, to the Indiana Supreme Court. During the last fiscal year, the justices reviewed 634 cases, heard 37 oral arguments, and handed down 56 majority opinions out of 81 total opinions. The number of cases received in the last fiscal year is a drop from the 724 cases received in fiscal year 2020 to 2021 and the 913 cases in 2019 to 2020. But Rush says that she is seeing the numbers start to increase again. Criminal cases before the high court were also down due to the pause on jury trials during the pandemic, Rush says. Last year, the court received 286 criminal cases, down from 363 and 481 in the two fiscal years prior. When it comes to bar passage rates, the Chief Justice says that she's still concerned about where Indiana may be headed. The passing rate spiked to 72% for fiscal year 2020 to 2021, when examinees were permitted to use open books during the August 2020 test. However, the passage rate was down to 65% last fiscal year, which included the first time Indiana administered the uniform bar exam in July 2021. An increase in judicial discipline filings for fiscal year 2021 and 2022 has also sparked Rush's interest. In 51 judicial discipline cases, the Judicial Qualifications Commission either required judges to respond to allegations or conducted formal inquiries or investigations, up from 38 cases the previous fiscal year. Backlogs from COVID, the public's increased frustration with institutions, and traumatic cases are all contributing factors to that increase, Rush says. I think a lot of those cases come down to judges being overwhelmed. And there comes a time where you have to ask yourself, are you serving the people? You're, you put on a robe and you sit in judgment, and you've got to be on your A-game. To read more about increased judicial discipline rates, Check out Jordan's coverage in the November 23rd issue of the Indiana Lawyer. Thanks, Katie. Also happening in the Indiana Supreme Court is the appeal of the injunction against Indiana's new near-total abortion ban. The state justices will hear arguments in that case in January, and the state has already filed a brief asking them to reinstate the ban. In the brief filed earlier this month, Indiana Attorney General Todd Rakita claims the trial court judge who enjoined the abortion ban made a, quote, judicial amendment of the Indiana Constitution. The trial court judge determined the ban violates Article 1, Section 1 
of the Indiana Constitution. But Rakita says the Constitution itself and the history surrounding it shows the framers of the Indiana Constitution did not consider abortion to be a fundamental right. Meanwhile, in another abortion-related case, Rakita himself is being sued alongside Scott Barnhart, the leader of the Consumer Protection Division in the AG's office. Dr. Caitlin Bernard and Dr. Amy Caldwell, both of whom provide abortions, are suing Rakita and Barnhart for allegedly exceeding their authority and breaching confidentiality provisions through their investigations of consumer complaints. You may remember Bernard as the doctor who publicly announced in July that she had performed an abortion on a 10-year-old girl from Ohio because the girl could not obtain an abortion in her home state due to a new Ohio abortion law. Rakita went on a Fox News program and announced that he was investigating Bernard's conduct related to the Ohio girl, and a public battle between the two ensued. Now, Bernard and Caldwell, her medical partner, are suing Rakita and Barnhart and have asked the Marion County Commercial Court to stop them from accessing patient records. That motion was filed on November 9th, and at the time I'm recording this, the trial court hadn't yet ruled. We'll keep you posted. Rounding out our court coverage, we've got an update on a case that Hoosiers have been following for nearly six years. On October 26th, authorities arrested Richard Matthew Allen and have charged him with two counts of murder in the deaths of Liberty German and Abigail Williams, two teenage girls from Delphi who were found dead in February 2017. The girls' deaths and the long search for their killer has gripped the nation. The case is being tried in Carroll County, but already Carroll Circuit Judge Benjamin Diner has recused himself, although he didn't say why. Allen Superior Judge Fran Gall will preside over the case against Allen as a special judge. Diner did take one action in the case before recusing. He allowed Allen to be moved from the local county jail to a state prison due to safety reasons. This case is one that many people will be interested in, so we'll keep a close eye on it and bring you updates as we get them. A jury trial is scheduled for March, but there's sure to be a lot of activity in the case before then. To wrap up today's headlines, let's send it back to Katie for a preview of a story she's working on for the November 23rd issue of Indiana Lawyer. Many Hoosier children will be officially united with their forever families this November in celebration of National Adoption Month. Several Indiana trial courts take advantage of the opportunity to publicly celebrate the union of foster kids and their adoptive parents as they become a family unit following months and often years of adoption proceedings. National Adoption Month is an exception to the court's usual rules against cameras in courts. During designated adoption days, families are permitted to take photos and video of their adoptive children's celebratory moments. Indiana adoption attorney Nathan Leach says that witnessing families celebrate the finality of their adoptions is truly rewarding. He participates in the Hamilton County Courts' Adoption Day celebrations, where many of his older clients have their adoptions finalized. You can just tell the, the stress and the worry about whether or not they were ever going to get to this point is, you know, gone. And it, it hits home and they realize that it's, that it's final and, and it's everything that they've been hoping for. Check out the November 23rd issue of Indiana Lawyer to learn more about the impact of adoptions on Indiana courts, as well as Hoosier attorneys and adoptive families. Back to you, Jordan. All right, that's it for this week's headlines. Be sure to check out our website, theindianalawyer.com, for continued updates from the world of legal news. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear our post-election analysis with Thomas Cook of Bose Public Affairs Group. Taft. 
Today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, coming fresh off the midterm elections, we're joined in the studio by Thomas Cook a principal at Bose Public Affairs Group in Indianapolis. Cook joined Bose McKinney and Evans in February 2021 as a partner in the Site Selection and Economic Incentives Group and now assists clients with government relations and strategic communications needs. Cook assists clients with economic development opportunities in Indiana and the Midwest, site selection, financing options, workforce and development incentives, and public-private partnerships. He represents clients in a variety of industries, including technology, hospitality, agribusiness, and sports. Prior to joining Bose McKinney and Evans, Cook served as chief deputy mayor for the city of Indianapolis. While working for the city, he helped negotiate more than $1 billion in public-private partnerships and mixed-use developments, including notable projects such as Bottleworks and the new Emphasis corporate campus, along with efforts to redevelop the former GM stamping plant near downtown Indy. He earned his law degree from IU Maurer School of Law. Let's start with a broad question. What are your general thoughts on how the elections played out in Indiana? Yeah, in some respects, the biggest news was that there was no big news yeah. in, in many of these races, uh, both at a local level in central Indiana uh, and, and across the state. Um, obviously, depending upon your political persuasion and which races you cared about, that may be good or bad news. But on the whole, in a year in which you would have expected based on media narrative there to be either a red wave or a backlash against uh, Trump affiliated candidates here in Indiana. It really looked, it sounded like just about every statewide election we've had for the last couple of decades. And for Democrats in Indiana, particularly the Indiana Democratic Party, that's that's not a great night and certainly not as good as they would have hoped. But uh, especially at the state house level, these were new districts drawn by Republicans. And uh, I think most people uh, with experience that had been looking at these races would tell you this is probably what should have been expected across the board. So what did voters care about this time? Was it abortion, inflation, all the above? Yeah, I mean, I, I will say that inflation overwhelmingly seems to have been both the biggest issue for most voters and probably the least definable. <laughs> and by that, I mean, uh, while certainly reproductive rights and a number of other hot button issues have been in the news, inflation was a uh, non-traditional issue that transcended political party and ideology. Um, in some respects, uh, while I think the Supreme Court case in June is going to have lasting effects, and, and my personal opinion is is very negative effects for the, the state and the country, uh, Halloween and the price of candy <laughs> may well have been on the minds of as many, mm. if not more voters who went into the ballot box this year. And I think uh, the flip side of that is, having said all of that, you would expect given precedent that this would have been a particularly bad year uh, for the president's party. And I think what we've seen nationally is uh, that hasn't been necessarily the case. And unfortunately for Indiana Democrats, a, a normal year in Indiana is not particularly good for them. And so uh, I, th I think that's how all of those issues played out at the end of the day. Uh, in, in the U.S. Senate race, uh, Republican Todd Young Cruz to win over his Democratic challenger, Tom McDermott. Um, why do you think, you know, Young was able to win with such ease? Well, I mean, I, I will say Mayor McDermott uh, 
could be accused uh, of many things, perhaps, but not working hard ain't one of them. Uh, he he yep. was traveling the state, frankly, along with the entire Democratic state ticket, and, and they worked their tails off with uh, a significant headwind. At the end of the day, I, I think for most candidates who ran this year, uh, the issues they felt at the doorstep, knocking doors, that they saw when they were out at community events were more defined by what's on cable TV news than necessarily what was in their local newspaper. And that's frustrating. And, and I think Senator Young has uh, accomplished a lot during his tenure. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, I, I'm not sure, despite all the TV ads he ran, that if you ask the average person, what did Senator Todd Young run on? They could necessarily tell you. I think hmm. he was a Republican in a largely Republican state and people felt pretty good uh, about Republican leadership and and that worked well for him. And um, he's going to get back to Washington and get to work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the sound bites that came out um, after he conceded was, you know, he said, I felt like I lost, I wasted 14 months of my life. Um, oh, you know, is that a general sentiment in uh, in some of these losses for Democrats? Or was that kind of tongue in cheek, just the way he talks? I, I will say, uh, knowing the mayor uh, pretty well, that that's a, a little bit more reflective of his personality than sure. necessarily <laughs> maybe even how he feels. I, I think... Mayor McDermott, our whole statewide ticket, uh, they were out there talking about issues that are important. And I and I would actually argue made a lot of headway. I, as poor as the results look for Democrats, I think it's worth noting that it could have been far worse. And we've certainly seen far worse election outcomes in recent years. And I think what Chairman Mike Schmuel has tried to instill both in his candidate recruitment efforts and in the strategy that he's deployed around the state is um, that we're going to recruit top quality candidates who are willing to work hard and they're going to be on the road talking in places that haven't seen a Democratic candidate, especially at a statewide level, maybe roll into town for a while. That's a strategy that I personally believe in. It's certainly one that served uh, Mike's previous boss, Pete Buttigieg, well on the whole, but it's not a strategy that works overnight. uh, And it's not necessarily a strategy that's going to produce results uh, even in the short term. Uh, But I think it matters. And I think Democrats can can be proud of that at the end of the day, even though the results weren't there. Well, and I mean, you know, they did get something of a significant win with Frank Mervan getting re-election. You know, there's a lot of talk about Jennifer Ruth Green and whether she could turn that district red. So, I mean, that's something that they really fought on. No, and I'll, I'll be candid, right? If, if we had a time machine and could go back to what we were all thinking and talking about a year ago, if you had sort of told Mike Schmuel that he was going to get out of a midterm election with a Democratic first-term president, having held both of his congressional seats and largely enjoyed status quo in terms of number of state reps and state senators based on new lines drawn by Republican supermajorities, he would have probably shaken your hand and said, <laughs> I'll take that deal all day long, right? And yeah. and I think it's testament to the work that was done and frankly, some of the more questionable candidacies on the Republican side of the equation that expectations maybe had begun to turn a little bit uh, in recent weeks that there there might be a lightning in the bottle moment that Democrats have enjoyed in previous cycles. That didn't materialize, but I, I don't know that that necessarily means that progress wasn't made this year uh, in terms of moving the infrastructure of the Indiana Democratic Party forward. Mm-hmm. To um, talk about maybe on this the statewide level, um, looking at the Republican Party, of course, all statewide offices went Republican again. Um, the one Democrats had been eyeing, of course, the big one was Secretary of State. We had Diego Morales and Destiny Wells. You know, a big part of the 
case against Morales was questions about his qualifications and his you know past with that office. He was still elected by a pretty wide margin. I mean, I guess what do we what should we make of that? Well, the first thing to make of it, and, and I want to give credit where credit is due. I mean, if you remove the candidates, the Indiana Republican Party has a very well-established, well-oiled, effective political organization mm-hmm. that has been built up uh, over the last 20 years and is very good at winning races, right? And that's an infrastructure that the Indiana Democratic Party may well have possessed during the 1990s mm-hmm. and into the early 2000s, but has uh, in some respects atrophied uh, as a result of changing demographics, political persuasions, and a lack of success at the ballot box. So. A lot of this, I think, can be attributed, and perhaps this is a former campaign staffer talking here <laughs> self-servingly, to the quality of the strategy, the efforts, um, and frankly, the fundraising prowess of a political organization that enjoys a lot of statewide offices. Um, but the other thing that I think, unfortunately, uh, speaking on a, a podcast associated with a print publication, sure. is that the power of local media vis-a-vis uh, cable TV news macro political narratives may be somewhat diminished in a year where candidates didn't have enough money to put things on TV, right? Mm-hmm. What happens in sure. a local newspaper is incredibly important. And there were certainly a whole host of uh, questions and issues raised about uh, Mr. Morales's candidacy. Um, but if that's behind a subscription paywall and you don't have the money to take those quotes and put it on the cable TV news show that people are watching right. every night, it's a tree falling in the forest, right? Mm-hmm. And so I I don't mean that to be pessimistic about the state of journalism because I think we saw some top-notch journalism associated with various races this year. Um, but at the end of the day, money and the ability to communicate in the mediums that people are consuming these days is still, I think, the most overriding factor in terms of uh, ballot box success. And um, Mr. Morales certainly benefited from the Indiana Republican Party's uh, ability to do that. Sure. Uh, looking more broadly at Congress, uh, what are some key races in your mind? And did you know? Do we see the quote unquote you know red wave that Republicans were uh, predicting going into it? Yeah, I feel like uh, these days it takes at least a couple weeks to really understand what mm-hmm. the final results are, yeah. and certainly the prospective runoff in Georgia yeah. uh, may make it even longer. But look, I, I am not a, a student of history of congressional midterm elections, but this is certainly, I think, shaping up to be uh, a, an evening uh, on Tuesday that President Biden probably will point to as a sign of success, even if the House is lost by Democrats. The expected losses across the board in the House and the Senate just didn't materialize. And, and I think candidate selection and recruitment played a role in that. Sure. And I think that, again, shows sort of the disconnect between what an average Republican voter uh, who wakes up and goes to their job every morning uh, and and thinks about their state representative or state senator in a fleeting way, uh, that disconnect between that and, and what the Republican Party message is at a national level. And by the way, that's equally true on the Democratic Party side, that a lot of what national Democrats were talking about were not what Indiana Democrats or independents mm-hmm. inclined to vote for them were talking about. So I, I think... You know, that ended up being a mishmash of mixed results. Uh, a draw <laughs> is a win for the president. I, mm. I think they would say that. And the prospect of maintaining control of the Senate gives him far more ability to push an agenda in the second two years of his uh, administration. And I certainly think they'll be thankful for that. Well, on that, you know, say the House does go Republican. What does that mean for his agenda? I mean, that certainly it's going to slow him down to some extent. Yeah, I think so. I, I uh, 
would say, uh, I think the White House has been pretty honest that they front loaded a lot of his legislative agenda mm -hmm. these first two years. Sure. And um, it's easy to lose sight in a post-COVID world where hundreds of billions of dollars were flowing out in COVID aid to the sheer dollar amounts of the programs that were approved over the last two years. Yeah. But the bipartisan infrastructure law, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, these are massive, monumental pieces of legislation that on their own in any other environment probably would be spoken about, you know, in, in the ways that the, the the New Deal and the Great Society mm -hmm. and other big programs are. And maybe history will suggest, looking back, that they were that significant. But um, I think because of coming out of COVID, because of the general uncertainty of the two parties right now, um, it's kind of difficult to understand what that legacy is going to look like. And I think standing on their own, even if there is a bit more of a log jam leading into the 2024 cycle, uh, I think Democrats in general will have a lot to run on based on those accomplishments over the first two years. Were there any races that should have gotten more attention in Indiana or elsewhere? Well, I, I would always say state legislative races. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are races that in a year that didn't have particularly high turnout, you know, may have tens of thousands of people vote in them. And I, I do think that um, what we have seen over the last couple of years, if I can talk up journalism for a minute, sure. is a renewed interest in uh, building up state house press coverage. And I yes. think that's going to be critically important. When you have Republican supermajorities in both chambers, it is easy to sort of lose interest in what's going on within the legislature because so much seems like a foregone conclusion. But uh, I think those state house races um, are are important, were important this year, will continue to be important. Um, and obviously, these are new district lines. And so we're going to have new voices. Voices coming into the state house. Andrea Hunley here in Indianapolis obviously generated a lot of interest locally, and I think we're going to have some new uh, folks in both parties around the state go in. And anytime you insert uh, new blood into the state house, and I say this with great respect to the old blood that's there, um, I think that's a good thing. It's something worth yep. watching. And uh, with caucus leadership votes taking place over the last couple of days, you know, we may see some new committee chairs and other things that'll have a, a big impact on the state over the next couple of years. So can you make any predictions without your crystal ball of what's coming in 2024 based on what we saw in 2022? Well, I will tell you, I'm uh, the sort of person that doesn't look past 2023 in a lot of <laughs> municipal elections here in, sure. uh, here in Indiana. Uh, but I, I will say, I think really two people are going to determine the dynamic of the 2024 cycle, and that's President Biden and uh, Mr. Trump. Uh, and I'm expecting we will probably hear from the latter before the former uh, here in the coming weeks, uh, if my own cable TV news consumption is to be believed. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think everyone recognizes that a campaign in which Donald Trump is a participant will be fundamentally different, regardless of whether, whether President Biden seeks a second term than any other. Uh, and I would suspect Mr. Trump himself would say that even if he doesn't run, he will continue to try to exert uh, a not insignificant influence over the process. So I don't know that I uh, have any predictions. Uh, I think uh, Donald Trump's election in 2016 uh, has destroyed my own internal faith <laughs> in my predictive abilities. <laughs> so I'll leave that for somebody else. Other than to say, we're, we're looking at divided government over the next yeah. two years. And that doesn't necessarily benefit one party over the other. Uh, and the art of legislative um, strategy, I think, will dictate a lot of where we find ourselves leading up to the 2024 cycle. All right, that's it for this week's extended interview. Thanks again to Thomas Cook for joining us today. 
As always, if you want to listen to previous episodes of the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, head to our website or to your favorite podcast app.